you have your Bibles, please open to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, we're going to be reading today, uh, starting in verse 35 and going through chapter 10, verse 15. Uh, I just want to make a, an unrelated comment to the sermon. Um, it's, it's always a joy when I'm preaching or when I'm doing the, uh, the congregational prayer to be up front, because then I can hear all of you singing. And it is a really, really blessing. It's a huge blessing and a very neat thing because in a lot of contexts, the music is so loud that you really can't hear anyone but the musicians on stage. And while they are leading us, the point of congregational singing is that we're singing together and anything that hinders our ability to sing together and understand that's what we're doing by hearing one another, I think takes away from what God has for us. So... I just appreciate your heart uh, in singing um, and engaging God in worship like that. And it is just, it is a blessing to be up here. And, and sometimes I just stop singing. I just listen because it's like, this is, this is congregational worship right here. It's not a performance. It's all of us together coming before our God to sing. And it is an amazing thing. Um, but back in Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through chapter 10, verse 15, my message title today is really simple. It's just, The Disciples' Ministry. Uh, The Disciples' Ministry. We're going to begin reading in uh, chapter 9, verse 35, and we'll read up through chapter 10, verse 15. Verse 35, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. When He saw the crowds, He had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or staff, for the laborer deserves his, way, his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, 
it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. An amazing several verses here that we have to look at this morning when we think about the disciples' ministry or the ministry God has given or Christ has given to His disciples. And, you know, if you're at all familiar with the New Testament, you know this is, this is one of those texts you go to when it comes to like missions and evangelism and for good reason as we're going to see as we work through this. So kind of keep that in the background. I don't think it's without uh, warrant to say that we come to a passage like this and we see so clearly Jesus' call on our lives to go and share the gospel with the world. It, it is unmistakable. It, it is clear as day uh, the responsibility that we have as Christians to share the gospel. It's not something that merely the pastors are to do which is a, almost a common understanding in a lot of church contexts. That's what, the, what we pay the pastor for. It is a responsibility placed upon every believer in Jesus to be an evangelist, to share the gospel, to tell their neighbors, their friends, their family, their co-workers, and people far away that Jesus is Lord, there's salvation only in Him, and in order to receive that salvation, a person must repent and believe. It is for all of us. That doesn't mean all of us will be equipped to the same degree. Some are going to be more gifted than others. Some are going to have that gift of evangelism. But all of us are called to the task of evangelism. All of us are. None of us are exempt from it. Um, And I think we will see that uh, in our text today. So I've got three main points that I want to work through uh, from this text. When we think about the disciples' ministry or the ministry for disciples, uh, three things in verses 35 through 38 of chapter 9, we're going to see an urgent need revealed. An urgent need revealed. In chapter 10, verses 1 and 4, we will see a motley crew assembled. And then in chapter 10, verses 5 through 15, we'll see an initial mission commenced. An urgent need revealed, a motley crew assembled, and an initial mission commenced. And so let's read again chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And so again, what we see in these verses is is an urgent need revealed. Jesus is showing us something that we need to see. Um, And as we think about what Jesus is showing us, the first thing we need to see is in his own ministry, a pattern of ministry that is established, a pattern of ministry that is established. Again, verse 35, he went throughout all the cities and villages. And what was he doing? What was Jesus doing? This is his day in, day out ministry as the Messiah, as he walks on the earth. He was teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And what we see here is that teaching and preaching come first, miracles come second. Teaching and preaching come first, miracles come second. Second, that order is very, very important. The gospel is always central in our ministry, not just trying to live out the effects of the gospel, but the verbal proclamation of the gospel. You've heard it said 
uh, a quote attributed to uh, St. Francis of Assisi, you know, preach the gospel always, use words if necessary. That is an unfortunate statement. One, if you know anything about St. Francis of Assisi, that's not true about him because he was a preacher. He would have wanted to speak the gospel. But number two, it is completely out of sync with what the scriptures actually teach. People do not become Christians first and foremost by watching another person's life. You might say that sounds strange because many of us have been impacted by the testimonies of other people who are walking with Christ. We see the genuineness of their faith, the reality of the change that has taken place. But what actually saves us? It is hearing the gospel message proclaimed and then responding in repentance and faith to that message. Yes, our lives absolutely matter. They should, they should uh, corroborate and, and, and line up with what we are saying people should believe. But people are not saved by our testimonies. They're saved by hearing and responding to the gospel. And that's why we say the gospel is always central. It has to be. Uh, and, and that's clearly what was the case with Jesus as he was teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the what? The gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom of God. That has to come first. Why? If we put healing first and we put the gospel second, then what we are doing is prioritizing earthly enjoyments and comforts over eternal heavenly realities. The gospel deals with forever. You can be perfectly healed of every disease, every affliction in this life, and you can still miss out on eternity with God. You completely miss out on that. And so that's why that has to come second. It keeps it in its proper place. It is not to say that physical ailments, physical afflictions and diseases are unimportant to God because obviously Jesus spends a lot of time healing people of those. But as we've already seen in the ministry of Jesus, back in chapter 9 in the healing of the paralytic, what is the first thing Jesus does? He doesn't heal the guy. He forgives his sins. And so we see the, 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 the centrality and the priority of spiritual issues over physical comfort. And so the gospel is always central. Spiritual needs surpass physical needs, though meeting physical needs can open the door to spiritual concerns. And so we're not ignoring the physical needs of people. We should not do that. Uh, we, we should absolutely see that there are people in need and if there's a way we can alleviate their suffering and enter into their lives and help them out, whatever their need might be, we are opening doors and removing obstacles to the gospel. Okay, So meeting physical needs and helping people in their suffering is a good and commendable thing, but it cannot have first place. And so the question that we need to make sure we are answering rightly is what is the priority in ministry? What is the priority in ministry? It is always, it is always teaching and preaching the Word of God and the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So we see this pattern of ministry established by Jesus. And secondly, we see in Him a compassion for people displayed. Oh my goodness, we see a compassion for people displayed. Why is it that we meet needs? Is because we feel, we hurt, we want to help from the heart. What does it say there in verse 36? That when Jesus saw the crowds, He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. 
Jesus was deeply moved. That word had compassion. It means like he, from his gut, he, he, he hurt for them. He felt for them. He had pity for them. And he was moved by the state of these people who were, spiritually speaking, they were weary. They were exhausted. They were close to collapse. Jesus cares about people in their brokenness. He cares about people in their brokenness. And so should we. So should we. Sin ruins everything. We just talked about that in Sunday school. Uh, just in the last uh, hour, sin comes in, chaos enters, everything is disrupted. Everything, relationships, life, work, everything. Sin messes us up and we are, yes, first condemned and guilty before God in our sin, but then we experience the brokenness and, 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 and the, the, the chaos that sin brings in. We experience that in our own lives, in our own hearts. Why is it that we struggle with anxiety? Why do we struggle with different sinful temptations? Why, why, why? It's because of sin. And Jesus looks out over these people and he has compassion. He, he feels for them in their broken, harassed state. And so we need to ask ourselves, we see the heart of Jesus here for people. We need to ask ourselves this question, are we genuinely, deeply moved by the spiritual and physical needs of others? We rightly talk a lot in this church about the evidences of salvation. You know, what are the evidences of God's grace in your life? The, the things that show that you're born again, that, you, that you're a new creature in Christ, that you've moved from death to life. Another thing we need to add to our list, as we grow in Christ, we should more and more develop the heart of Christ for people. And so we can ask ourselves, I can ask myself, you ask yourself, am I genuinely, am I deeply moved by the spiritual needs that I see around me? Am I broken for other people? Am I broken for them like Jesus was from the inside, not just saying, I know I should be, but that I actually hurt for the hurts of others. When that happens, it tends to compel us to reach out. In the same way a parent who sees their kid injured, the injury doesn't, oh, what's wrong with you? Why would that happen? What, what do you do? You move towards someone or a friend or a loved one. You move toward them in their brokenness. And so we should move towards people in their spiritual brokenness. And so we see a pattern of ministry, a compassion for people. And thirdly, we see a harvest of souls that we need to recognize. Verse 37 is an amazing verse. Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The harvest is plentiful. What that means is there's a harvest right now. Not just down the road, right now. There is a harvest waiting, waiting for us. And what this means is we should share the gospel with great confidence. We should have confidence when we share the gospel. Why? Because we know God can save and we know God will save. And Jesus is telling us there's a whole lot of people out there that are going to be saved. That's what he means. It's like the, when, a, when, when a farmer in, in their day hears the harvest is plentiful, that means it's ready now. Go out into the field and start harvesting now. Right now. And so what that tells us is we can go and share the gospel because 
God will direct our steps to people who need Jesus, who will respond at some point. He will. That's built into this. All the theology that we build about unconditional election, effectual calling, it comes down to this. We know God's going to save and therefore we can go out and we can disperse the gospel as generously as we can. Why? Because God is going to work through it and he is going to save. And so here's a question. Will we take advantage of the opportunities all around us? And what I mean is I get this from uh, Dr. Tim Bucher, one of my professors when I was at Southern Seminary. He said something and it has it has always stuck with me. You know, if, if you're like me, you tend to pray, Lord, uh, you know, make these opportunities. Lord, you know, create this opportunity for me to share the gospel with someone. And, and Dr. Bucher said, you know, I stopped praying that way. Instead, what I started praying was this. I said, God, open my eyes to the opportunities that are already there. That's amazing if you think about it. It means we're already surrounded by people who need Jesus. We don't have to pray, God, will you show me somebody who needs Jesus? Instead, no, open my eyes. They're already there. God doesn't have to make them spring up out of the ground. They're already there. Maybe in our own home, for sure in our families, for sure at our jobs and our neighborhoods, um, in other places as well, if you're in school. Like there's already opportunities everywhere around us to preach the gospel people who need the gospel, who need to hear about Jesus, and we can go and share with them with the confidence that, you know what, God's going to save. We don't know who, we don't know when, but we know he's going to. We know he will, and so we can go and we can save. And on that basis, we get to verse 38, where we see a prayer for laborers to be sent. If anything pushes us to pray, It is our Lord's words here, verse 38. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. It is not enough to recognize the need. We must entreat God. We must plead with God to send out laborers into the harvest, into the world. That means we are praying for souls, We are praying for laborers to go and win those souls to Jesus. And I think if we're thinking rightly, we can say we need to be soul winners. Ultimately, we know it's God who saves. But God works through you and me to take that gospel to the world. What's interesting, if you know church history at all, prayer has almost always been one of the vital means God uses to bring about revival and awakening. You can read story after story in church history that when groups of Christians get burdened to pray and they get together and they pray earnestly for God to move, to revive the church, to renew the church, to save sinners, what ends up happening? That's exactly what God does. It's exactly what God does. When we gather to earnestly pray for God to move, great things tend to come. And so if anything pushes us as a church to pray for God's work in the world, for the advance of the gospel, for the conversion of souls, for the maturity of believers, it's this. It is this confidence. If Jesus is saying, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest, that means he is ready. He is eager. He is willing to work in the world to bring that harvest about. 
And so let's recommit our hearts and our minds to seek the Lord in prayer. God, raise up more and more people to go and share. But here's where it gets interesting. We should not just pray, and we should pray for missionaries to be sent out and to go to the far corners of the earth. We should pray, Lord, make me one of those laborers. This gets back to our own responsibility. This this harvest that we are going to go be involved with, we can say, God, make make me an answer to that prayer. Not just somebody else somewhere to go and preach Jesus. God, make me that one who's going to go and preach Jesus. And that starts with just, again, either walking down the road to our neighbor's house or across the hall to somebody we work with. God, make me that laborer, even as we pray for God to raise up many to go to the nation. So will we pray that God will make us a laborer in this great harvest of souls? But also as a church, as North Avenue Church, will we pray for God to use our church to support laborers, to send laborers, and to go as laborers into God's harvest field? And so that's why I entitled this first point, An Urgent Need is Revealed. What is that need? There is a harvest ready. There is a harvest that is ready for God's workers to go out into it and preach the gospel because God is going to reap a harvest through that. So we see an urgent need, need revealed. We see, secondly, a motley crew assembled. Chapter 10, verses 1 and 4. Let's read that again. And he called to his 12, he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, we think about this motley crew. Motley simply refers to a diverse, various group of people brought together. Um, We think of this motley crew that Jesus has assembled here, these 12 disciples. First, we see that an unnatural power is bestowed. And in this case, what is unnatural is supernatural, uh, as we are familiar with. What does it say in verse 1 that Jesus did? He gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. An unnatural power is bestowed. A supernatural power is bestowed on these apostles um, for their ministry. As they go out, as we saw verses 5-15, through 15, uh, they are to do what? They're going to be having authority. They're going to be casting out demons just like Jesus did. They're going to be healing the sick just like Jesus did, raising the dead uh, and all those things. But that's not the main focus of this, I don't think. I think the main focus is this unlikely group that's gathered together. That's why I say a motley crew. Uh, this is an unlikely group. Um, you know, we, if we had time, we, we, could, we could spend five, six, seven sermons just on these individuals in their lives. I think John MacArthur probably actually did that. Um, I'm not going to do that this morning or this afternoon. Um, but let's just take a look at a few of these guys. And we say an unlikely uh, group that is gathered together. These aren't all the same type of people. They don't all come from the same walk of life, the same social status, the same background. This is a diverse group. Here's a, a few examples. Think of Peter. Again, this is the group that's going to go represent Jesus. You know, they're going to preach about the gospel of the kingdom. They're going to do all these miracles. And you've got Peter, who is brash, 
quick to speak and slow to think. And that's true about Peter. And maybe, I don't know, it might be true about some of us. I have to work on that sometimes. Quick to speak, slow to think. Peter's always just rushing out there with an answer. Sometimes before he really knows what he's doing. Um, So that's one guy. Another one. You got James, the son of Zebedee. This guy's going to end up being the first apostle who's martyred. Hmm. Who wants to sign up? You'll be the first one killed in this group. You got John, James's brother. It's interesting. His brother was the first to be killed and John is the last to die. But both of these individuals were likely really young when Jesus called them. They might have been the youngest of the group. Um, and so they're very, you know, in terms of their life on earth, immature, it's still got, you know, maturity to go through, um, adulthood to enter uh, in, the, in the truest sense. Think of Thomas, who we know always is doubting Thomas, but, you know, he appears in a couple other places and he's always seeking evidence and proof. He's an inherent doubter. You, you got to prove this to me. Um, is that somebody? Is this doubting type of person the one you want going and preaching the gospel? You got Matthew, who we, we've just recently talked about, who is a converted tax collector. He was a, a traitor to Israel. Why would Jesus choose someone who used to be a traitor, who sold out his own people for a prophet? You got Simon the Zealot, who's mentioned, who's the exact opposite of Matthew. If Matthew was the one who turned his back on his people, Simon the Zealot's the one who's the most faithful to his people, ready to take Rome by the horns and burn it down. And then you've got, obviously, Judas Iscariot, a greedy traitor, a spiritual pretender. Those are the twelve Jesus called to go out, teach and preach and heal and raise the dead and all of that. That's amazing. It is an unlikely group. But that's the church. Because these, these guys are the foundation of the church. And they, they serve as an early picture of the diversity that is in the church. We come from all different lives, different upbringings, different social statuses, different experiences, all kinds of differences. And yet we find in Jesus something that unites us above and over all of those differences. That's amazing. That's what Jesus does. He can unite what was divided. He does it with His own apostles here. This motley crew, this unlikely group, is not one we would have chosen. But they're exactly who Jesus wanted. They're exactly who He wanted. They're exactly who He desired. And our church should always be a a mashup of different people who are coming together in common faith, common worship of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we see an urgent need revealed. We see this motley crew that Christ has assembled. And now in chapter 10, verses 5 through 15, we see this initial mission commenced. uh, An initial mission commenced. Let's read it again. These 12... This is before He sends out the 72 that we read about in Luke. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. 
Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. In whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Let's think briefly about this mission, this initial mission that has commenced since Jesus has sent out his disciples. First, we need to see it focused on the Jews. Again, verse 5. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, to the Jew first. Paul talks about that frequently in his letters, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. No Gentiles, no Samaritans on this mission. We might say that seems kind of strange because we're a great commission people going to, you know, go to all the nations and make disciples. But here it had to be this way. Why? Because the cross and resurrection and ascension and Pentecost were still future events. That hadn't happened yet. Okay? Hadn't happened yet. This is not the great commission that we see right here. It doesn't mean we can't learn from it because we certainly can learn from it. But this is not the great commission. There can be no great commission without the cross and the resurrection. And at this point, there's been no cross and resurrection. It's a certainty, but it hasn't happened yet. And so this is focused on the Jews. Why? Jesus himself, as we know, is Jewish. The Messiah is a Jewish Messiah, and he comes first to his own people. And then after that, to the nations. This commission is focused on preaching. Again, verse 7. And proclaim this herald as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we've already said this, so I won't belabor the point, but verbal proclamation is absolutely essential to the gospel. It is absolutely essential to ministry. Verbally proclaiming the good news of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the salvation and eternal life that he brings. Verbal proclamation is key to the kingdom of God. The kingdom is built on a message, and it is the message of the gospel. So it's focused on the Jews. It's focused on preaching. Third, it's focused on miracles. It is focused on miracles. Look again at verse 8. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. Everything that Jesus was doing is what he gave his disciples the same authority to do. Now, we know this, we know this, but these miracles that we see here and then later in the early church, they were unique to the apostles and their generation in which they ministered. God always gave signs and wonders to confirm the giving of new revelation and of his word. And, and here we're getting it. And as the apostles went out and they preached and they taught and God had prophets in that generation. Yes, there were miracles, there were signs and there were wonders. But now that the apostolic testimony is finished and complete, we no longer need those confirming signs and we should not expect them in the church either. But I think this also just it, I'm trying to stay on track with this. But I got a question I want to ask. 
Because this is something we, we have to be aware of. It's a temptation we can easily fall into. Um, and so hopefully it'll make sense with the question I want to ask. Are our expectations of the success of the gospel based on the gospel itself or on miraculous signs? What do I mean? Do we believe the gospel need, today needs miracles for it to save people? I don't believe it needs those. I don't believe the Scripture tells us the Gospel needs miracles uh, surrounding it in order for people to come to Christ. The Gospel, as Paul says in Romans 1.16, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. The Gospel has power in itself to convert the soul. It is powerful in and of itself, and that is why we must labor, labor, labor to get the gospel right and keep our, our preaching of the gospel pure. We cannot dilute it. We cannot diminish it. We dare not take away from it and say something else is needed. Every time we say something else is needed, we end up departing from the gospel. We, 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 we water it down and we, we, we don't want to say certain things and we start to change it. We start to alter it because we've said the gospel is not enough itself. And, and when reality, the gospel is enough. When we pray for people to get saved, God, show the power of the gospel to save. Show the power of the gospel, not because I'm, I'm, I'm a good speaker or I'm eloquent when I share, but because you save through the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation. And so we see that it is focused on the Jews. It's focused on preaching, focused on miracles. And then another point that may or may not be obvious is this, this mission, this initial mission was short term. It was short term. Look again at the end of verse eight. It says, you received without paying, give without pay, acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff for the laborer deserves his food. What is Jesus getting at? Um, this is a limited mission trip, if you will. It's a short duration in comparison to the, the millennia long gospel proclamation that has been given to the church. This is, this is a specific beginning and at a certain time it ends. This is almost like ministry training for the disciples. Okay, Jesus is, they, they've been around him, they've seen, they've heard him preach, they've seen him work, and so he's now sending them out to go and do the same. And they're going to come back and they're going to report to him all that happened. This is ministry training for the apostles. This is not the same as Pentecost, this is not the same as the Great Commission here. Jesus spent much time training his disciples for ministry, and I think this is what that is. And so a big question for us, and as we, we think about this, is do we see the pastoral role in the church as a role of a trainer? I want to make that specific application. Uh, they are to, and I think Mark read this, equip the saints for the work of ministry. Because again, why? We're all called. It's not just one person's job who's the trained one. It's everybody's job. And a pastor, if he's doing his job rightly, isn't just doing the work himself. He's training everyone else to do it. But this also plays into the fact, and we, you, you know this if you've read other scriptures, you know, Jesus told his disciples, it's to your advantage that I go away. Otherwise, the helper, the comfort of the Holy Spirit won't come. Why is that? Why do they need to be trained to go and do ministry? Because Jesus isn't always going to be there. He's going to be present through the Holy Spirit, but he's not going to physically be on earth. Why is that important that he not remain physically on earth? It's because he can only be in one place at one time. 
But when the Spirit comes and fills all believers, they can go everywhere. And the more disciples are made, the more they can go and preach and teach the gospel. And so training here, as we see Jesus doing with his apostles, it is absolutely essential to the church and to the Christian life. We all are training and being trained to go and share the gospel. And lastly, we see about this this mission, this initial mission, is that it had eternal consequences. Look at the outcome of the people, what happens to the people who respond and how they respond. Uh, As you enter the house, verse 12, greet it. If the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to it. And listen to what Jesus says. This This is language of judgment here. If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. That's an act of judgment. That's an act of judgment, God's judgment. And that leads to verse 15 when Jesus says, Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Wow. Is he just like blowing that up for no reason? Because we know Sodom and Gomorrah. It was a wicked cities, wicked cities, what they wanted to do, what they were doing, what they were going to do to the two angels who came to rescue Lot and his his family. Sodom and Gomorrah was was the example of wickedness. And it's either Jude or 2 Peter. It talks about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah is like an example of, of what eternal punishment's going to be. And Jesus says, Sodom and Gomorrah are going to have it better on the day of judgment than these towns who rejected the message of the gospel. How can he say that? He can say that because the more truth we are exposed to, the more responsible we are to respond to that truth. Judgment is not going to be pleasant for anyone. Nobody's going to be in hell and be like, oh, I got it better than that guy over there. They're not going to do that. But God is just. And if someone has never heard the gospel, yes, they are still accountable to God because they've rejected his witness in creation and in their own conscience, and they will stand and be judged for that. But if you have heard the gospel, if you have heard the message of salvation in Jesus and you have refused that, your judgment will be even greater. It will be even greater and harsher and worse. And if we think what Sodom and Gomorrah received was bad, how much worse will it be for those who hear this gospel and say no? That is incumbent upon all of us to examine ourselves. If you are without Christ here today, the judgment hanging over you has only been increased because you have heard from the Word of God. And I don't say that to be mean. I don't say that to try to be scary or anything. I'm sharing the truth. Judgment for you is worse because you have it right here. Scripture says today is the day of salvation. You have it right now where God is saying, believe in my son, trust in my son, be forgiven, have new life. And if you say no to that, your judgment will be all the worse. So consider your own soul today. We say yes to Jesus. He's right here. This judgment that we're talking about, if you trust in Him, it's gone. It's gone. Because He took it all on that cross. He took it all. 
Will you trust in Him if you never have? Church, let's consider. Let's consider this urgent need. Let's consider our own unlikely grouping. And then let's engage in mission and let's take this Gospel to everyone that we can. Let's pray. Father, what a text. What a text. Lord, help us feel in our own souls the need around us. God, the harvest is plentiful. It's ready now. It is ready now. Help us as individuals and as a church consider how we can get even more engaged and involved in taking this gospel to those who need to hear it. Lord, I pray for the unity of this body, Lord. Help us get to know each other better and better and better. Lord, and as we learn about all our different experiences and backgrounds, Lord, may we lean into one another all the more and and find even greater fellowship, Lord, than you have already blessed us with. And Lord, help us go forth in mission to share this gospel, to share this hope that we have in Jesus. Lord, may may it burn in our souls because this message has to be proclaimed. Lord, if there is one here who is not a believer, who is without Christ, Lord, even as I'm praying, Lord, open their eyes to believe, to see their sin and confess it and turn to Jesus and find forgiveness and eternal life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.